as I was sitting there and singing along with the songs that um, uh, Deb was playing this thing right now, he's been all smiles the entire time, and that just speaks a lot about who he is. And he's smiling right now. So, uh, today's sermon is entitled, The God Beyond Counterfeit. The God Beyond Counterfeit. And why is it entitled like so? Well, I feel like we live in a time where there's so many views on who God is. And a lot of those views on God uh, is false. And that's important because if we have a different understanding of God, if we see Him as punishing or inadequate, then our hope in life will be deterred. We won't have the proper hope that we should. When the FBI, Federal, Federal Bureau Investigation, is that what it stands for? Yes. <laughs> Just want to make sure. I looked at my dad. He knows everything. So uh, when the FBI uh, created the counterfeit uh, intelligence uh, department, um, one, of the things that all of his, uh, one of the things that all the agents asked J. Edgar Hoover was, how are, you gonna, how are we going to know the difference between the real dollar versus the counterfeit dollar? Are you going to have to teach us all of the different ways that people are doing things uh, to, to, make, uh, to, to distinguish what's false and what's, what's real? J. Edgar Hoover just not, uh, shook his head and he said, no, I'm not going to teach you every single false-looking dollar. I'm going to have you learn the real one so well that when the counterfeit comes to you, you know that it's fake. I think that's the same thing with God. Lately, as a chaplain, and I'm preaching to you this morning from my heart, something that I've been thinking about and struggling and weighing on my heart is that in my line of work, I have to be respectful of all faiths, of all beliefs. But it tears my heart when I come into a patient's room and they have this hope that God is a punishing God. Or that there is no God, chaplain. How can you tell me that there is a God? And at that point, if they say that there is no God and they don't want to carry on a conversation any further, I see the distress in them where they have no hope from their hospitalization, whatever it might be, whether it's a sickness or an injury. And so this morning, I wanted us to look into the Bible to study... Ezekiel's story. And some of you might be very well versed to this story. It's in Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1 through 14, that's where we're going to stay for this morning, it talks about the valley of dry bones. It sounds horrendous. It sounds like it just came from a horror film, if anything. The Valley of Dry Bones. What I want us to explore today as we read this story is uh, I want us to look at the past. I want us to look at the present. I want us to look into the future of how God was back in this time, how God is today, and how God will be tomorrow. Because it all hinges on what our view is of God, so that way we may have hope in this life. The Valley of Dry Bones. 
Before we read this, let me give a background of what's going on. Do you know who Ezekiel is? He was a prophet. He was a prophet specifically uh, for the time of the people who were in exile. If you remember, sometime in 605 BC, uh, both Israel and the nation of Judah were both taken into captivity. Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria. Uh, Judah was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Ezekiel was one of the people... If you turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, just put your, uh, put your finger in 37 so you don't lose that. In Ezekiel chapter 1, this is what it tells us about Ezekiel. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third, uh, 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles. So he's part of that exiled group. I was by the Kabar River. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. So that's who he is. He's a man who was uh, grabbed along with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and several other Jews. And they were taken into Babylon. And so the people just felt utter uh, defeat utter defeat because now they don't have a home. Now they were living in a foreign land that they know nothing of. And that's why Ezekiel um, was, uh, was, was called by God to give a message to the people. And in this chapter, Ezekiel chapter 37, let's go back there now. It tells us that the hand of the Lord, verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Ooh. You know, it's interesting. I can sit in an ER room and I could see all of the things that are happening in there, and I won't get in detail right now, but you can imagine what happens in an ER room. But when I see bones or a skeleton, I gross out. Uh, when Bobby and I, um, we had a house in the mountains, and when we first moved into that house, there were just deer bones everywhere. Uh, so what we were imagining is that the previous owner that we bought the house from was a hunter and would just use his bow and arrow to, to take down the deer. And so it was disgusting. And so I just can't imagine, if I'm over here grossed out by just one bone that I have seen of a deer... How about human bones? How about a valley full of bones? It says in verse 2, The Lord led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. That's very specific. It tells us that the bones were very dry, that these people have been dead a very long time. No more flesh is left on these bones. It's been dead a long time. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. 
I will put breath inside of you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I, Ezekiel, prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise. A rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on these bones, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a very vast army. I can't even begin to imagine what this vision must have been like for Ezekiel. Because he saw these bones coming together. It tells us that he saw tendons coming together in the joints. Flesh coming about. Skin coming about. And then it tells us here that God instructed him to prophesy to these bones that breath will come inside of them. And that's what happens. When breath came inside of them, they came to life. My brothers and sisters, why, am I, why did I choose this story today? Is because how we see God, how we understand God, affects our idea on life and death. It affects our perception of what happens after, after we die. Is that it? According to the story, as we will find out, it's not. This story, I want us to find hope in this morning. And so, in verse 11, it continues on. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That's the main context right there. This context, this story that's taking place, it's for Israel, from, verse, uh, from what it says in verse 11. These bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off, cut off from God. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. If you've never read the book of Ezekiel, it's a beautiful book. The first 24 chapters, if I recall, is a judgment on Israel. Talks about the sins of the people. Not just Israel, but Jerusalem as well. And then verses 25 all the way to 32, I believe, uh, it speaks about um, um, the judgment of other nations. And then from 33 all the way to the last chapter, chapter 48, it talks about a promise. A promise of hope. A promise of life. The people felt defeated at this time. And they needed that hope. And God gave them that hope through Ezekiel. That's the main context of the story. How does this affect our future? 
I was reading our commentaries, and it does point out specifically that we can't use this to illustrate the second coming. One case in point, when I say our commentaries, I, I mean the Seventh-day Adventist, Adventist commentaries. Um, it says you can't use this to illustrate the resurrection. However, what I love about the story is, as a Christian, I can see how it ties closely to the resurrection. See, the Jewish people, the, uh, the literal Israel, Israelites, at this time, did not have any concept about the resurrection. They didn't. And so if you look at what, um, in chapter 3, or verse 3, in chapter 37, verse 3, when God asked, will these bones ever live again? Did you see what Ezekiel's response was? He says, you alone know, Lord. As if he does not have that concept of a resurrection. But since Jesus came, since Jesus lived, since Jesus died, and since he rose again, we have that idea of a resurrection. Because our whole foundation as Christians is built on that. Turn your Bibles uh, with me to 2 Thessalonians. Or 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. And let's see what it says there. It says, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who die, who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That's the future that we can grasp onto. That's the future that we can believe. That regardless of what happens to us, whatever might happen, we have this everlasting hope of a, re of a reunion with God. Doesn't that what it sounds, that's what it sounds like, right? Those who have been lost along the way, and those who are still alive, it tells us that we're all going to come together again with God. We are Seventh-day Adventists. That last part, Adventist, means that we believe in the Advent, in the Second Coming. And I think that is something that we need to be hoping for, if anything, at this moment. Because there's so much other stories happening out there. And I think we need to be carrying this light just as much as Ezekiel carried this light for his people to give them hope. That's the future. And so how does this really affect us today? Well, today, I don't know what you're experiencing in life. I don't know how you're feeling dried up. You might feel like you're one of these bones that's just dried up, that's consumed, that you just feel like you're running on fumes. But it tells us something here, that when we feel dried up, there's a promise here. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 37. What 
is the solution to feeling dried up. In verse 14, it says that I will put my spirit in you and you will live. When you feel dried up, pray for the Lord's spirit to come inside of you. And then in verse, the earlier verses in verse 9, it also talks about the breath of life coming into these bones. Where else do you remember hearing that? Genesis chapter 2. I'll read it for y'all. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, it's in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed in his, in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That word in the Hebrew is ruach. Ruach. Which ruach can be translated as wind or breath. And if you were to say the wind of God, that still makes sense. The wind of God to come inside of you. But of course, what makes most sense is that the breath of God come into a person. That when the breath of God comes inside of you, you will feel alive again. Okay. You might say, okay, Edre, you're spe speaking theologically. That's great. The breath of God comes inside of me. But how does that help me even to this day, especially when I feel dried up and I feel defeated like the Israelites? How does that look? How does that feel that God is inside of me, that the Spirit of God has come inside to breathe life into me again? How does that feel? Well, we saw one of the... Um, Verses here that I was actually going to use. In James chapter uh, 6, verse 5. Maybe I should do PowerPoint next time because your fingers are getting a good workout. James chapter 6. Or I'm sorry, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 16. James 5, 16. It says there, therefore confess your sins to each other and check this part out. This is how life is breathed inside of us. This is how God's spirit is breathed into us. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. I think for us to feel that spirit coming inside of us, we need to have a discipline of prayer individually and collectively as a church. So I'm very happy because for all the times I've been going to church, Godfrey, this is the first time that we actually pick out names. I've never experienced that in other churches. And so I'm so happy that, that, that you've encouraged us to do that here. I don't know where it came from. If it came from you, awesome. Um, all, kudos. Um, but, but that's a wonderful thing to do. For us to pray, for us to share each other's burdens, for us to share each other's uh, joys, and even the hard stuff. The stuff that we might feel embarrassed about. Because there's an element of trust and vulnerability there. And I think that's what it means to feel the presence of the Lord coming inside of us, the Spirit of the Lord. It starts with prayer. Sometimes, uh, when I was a teacher, my students used to tell me, Mr. Santos, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray within the group. 
because they were so embarrassed that when it was Vespers, and I, um, and my, I myself or another teacher might ask a, a student randomly to pray. Some of them knew how to pray and when to pray, and others were just embarrassed. And so we didn't want to put it or force it on them. But I would ask them, for those that felt embarrassed that didn't want to pray in, in, in large groups or for other people individually, like on a one-on-one basis, I would ask them, how are you praying at home? Well, I don't pray. I don't pray. If you start praying individually at home, it becomes easier outside or in a patient's room or a stranger on the street. That's what it tells us in Galatians, to pray for each other. I think that's one way to feel God's Spirit enter us. I think another way to feel God's Spirit enter us is listening to each other's stories. Adventist health systems, this is the latest thing that's happening in our Adventist um, uh, chaplains in, in, in the hospital setting. Uh, Jay Perez recently came and visited us um, from Orlando, where Adventist Health System has, it, has its main headquarters, and it's strong there. He came to visit each and every one of us as chaplains, and he said what they want to do in Adventist Health Systems is to encourage chaplains to listen to, uh, to encourage the chaplains to listen to patient stories as well as employee stories. Because listening, listening to stories does something. It makes us be present. It makes us sit and listen intently. Not just with the ears, but also with the heart. And so Jay Perez encouraged us as chaplains to start doing this more, even so. And not only doing it for our uh, own discipline, but for encouraging our employees or our coworkers, our nurses and doctors to do that with each other as well. They have such profound results at AHS in Florida that um, they have seen patient scores and employee scores whenever surveys are done just skyrocket through the roof because people are listening to each other's stories. Listening to each other's stories means that we're willing to listen to what other, per what other people are going through. Are you willing to do that right now? When Jesus was at Jacob's well and he was thirsty, yes, you're well, Jacob. Did you hear Jacob? He said, Jacob. When he was sitting by that well and he was thirsty, a woman came by, a Samaritan woman. If you recall that story. And then Jesus and this woman started interacting with each other. It started because Jesus was thirsty and asked for water. And this woman said, if you know who I am, that I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman, you wouldn't even talk to me like this, Jesus. But then Jesus said, there's going to be a time when we're going to be all together again. They have this interaction. And for some time, it doesn't tell us in detail, but I truly believe Jesus listened to her because he was able to pick up on things. If you recall that story, Jesus was even able to say something about her five husbands, right? Jesus listens to people's stories. He's listening to your story right now. He's watching your story unfold. Even though you're not sharing, with, uh, sharing it with him, although he would want you to share it with him, he's listening to your story because you're important to him. He wants to breathe that spirit inside 
of you. His Spirit. Because it tells us in Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to read it again because this, this is the biggest part of the entire sermon. It says here, I will put my Spirit in you and you will live. That is so important for us today. So, what does this tell me about God? It tells me God can defeat death. God can, can defeat when you feel defeated. He is victorious and He can make you victorious. It also tells me that God cares. Because even though the people of Israel felt so neglected and so defeated, He was still there. In the midst of it all, he was still there. So God can defeat. God cares. And God wants to be inside of you. He wants to be with you. And so I think the invitation for us today is this. Do we want to be with Him? Do we want to welcome His Spirit to live inside of us? My brothers and sisters, I have felt many times in my life where God's Spirit was breathed into me. There's, whenever I think about this idea, when did I really feel God's presence, there's been some key moments in my life. And I want to end the sermon with this. One of those moments is when I was 18. I had just been arrested and uh, taken to county jail. I was a little goofball of a teenager, and I won't tell you what I did. If you want to know, I'm very open with it. I could, we could sit down and talk about it someday. But I was arrested, taken to county jail. And as I was actually, I'll rewind a little bit. As a police officer was taking me to county jail, I had my handcuffs back. Uh, the, my hands were cuffed back here. And all I can think about was, this is it. My life is thrown out the window and my dad's going to kill me, my mom's going to disown me, um, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not worth anything anymore at this point. And then um, I didn't know what jail was like. I watched movies, and I remember horror stories from movies. So I was thinking, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to get raped. I'm going to, bad things are going to happen. And I'm thinking the worst case scenario. And then finally we get to the jail, uh, to county jail, and the officer takes me out and he sends me to this room where I'm getting processed, where my fingerprints are getting taken, and, and, all, and other things, my mugshot, you know. And I understand why now people don't have smiley mugshots, because it's such a horrible experience, you can't help but just frown. I can smile about it now, but when I was going through that experience, I just felt utterly worthless. I felt defeated. I felt scared. Because when I was 18, even though I'm this size now, I was a lot skinnier, and I thought I was going to get beaten up in jail. Finally, I was taken to my cell. And I didn't know how long I was going to be there for. And in my cell, I finally called my dad talked to my dad, and he said, we're going to come in the morning and get you. I said, get me now. Please get me now. He said, we can't get you till tomorrow. We have to get the money, and, we have, and they told us that we can come tomorrow morning. So I'm thinking, I have to spend the night in jail. 
And here I go into my cot, top bunk, because there was a guy underneath, a homeless guy. I could tell he was homeless. He reeked of urine. He reeked of blood. He just reeked of sweat. He was stinky is what, I was, was what I'm saying. And I had this big judgmental thing going on in my head that this homeless guy is gross and, I'm, and he's going to beat me up or something so I can't sleep. I, I better keep my eyes wide open. So I climbed the top, to the top bunk and it was so cold in there. So cold that I was shivering the entire night and I really couldn't sleep. I wanted to sleep. I was tired. I was emotionally exhausted. I just couldn't though. And then finally, I heard rustling from underneath. And the guy that was sleeping underneath, the homeless guy, goes on top and says, man, you must be cold. And you know what he does? He takes his blanket off of him, his stinky blanket, and he puts it over me. He puts it over me. And he says, I hope you're going to be okay. And he goes back underneath. And he sleeps. And at that point, it's not stinky anymore. At that point, I felt God's presence. Because God understood how scared I was. God understood how defeated <coughs> I felt. And God's presence that night was felt through that blanket. A gift from a homeless man. A gift from a homeless man. And then these homeless people ask for gifts, and yet sometimes we just drive by them. But this guy gave me a gift. The presence of God is great. I've never forgotten that story. And you know what happened afterwards? I fell asleep. I fell asleep, and when I woke up, my dad was there. It was already like nine hours later or something. Another time I felt God's presence <clears throat> is when I made the transition from being a pastor in a church to being a, a Bible teacher. Uh, Bobby and I moved from Michigan where I was studying at Andrews, uh, working on my graduate degree. And we moved to Dallas, Texas, where um, Dallas Christian Academy, one of our Adventist schools there, accepted me to be their campus chaplain and Bible teacher. And one of the first things I was asking myself when I made that move is, did I make the wrong move? Has that ever happened to you? You probably have a new job, or you probably married a person. I hope you're not saying that. Did I marry the right person after you married that person? Um, but have you ever had those doubts? And I think sometimes those are healthy doubts. I think my doubt was healthy. Because as I was teaching these students, I didn't feel like I was connecting with them. High school students. High school age students. Some of them would laugh and talk during class. Others would just sleep. And at that time, I was still learning the ropes because I never went through education or uh, I never went to college for education to be a teacher. I went to college to be a pastor. And so I didn't know how to teach these kids. And I was getting frustrated left and right. And I started asking myself for the first three weeks, did I make the right decision? And here I am teaching Bible class, and I don't know what's being heard. I don't know what they're listening to. And then one day, Zach Esparza, one of my students, uh, at that time he was a senior, 
comes into my classroom while I'm grading papers. And he says, Mr. Santos, do you have a second? I said, yes, Zach, please come in. And he said, I just want to say that I'm happy that you're here. It's like, really? Why is that? He said, because you've taught us Bible in a different way that I can make it relevant. It, it's relevant to my life, and it's, it's just touching. And I just want to say thank you that you're here. And I'm looking forward to this entire year, year with you. And that was a blessing that I received. That's another spirit of God experience that I had. And all of these experiences is not something I felt and experienced by myself. That's the key thing I'm trying to say here. It was always in the presence of other people. So I think if we are to feel the Spirit of God to come inside of us so that we may live, it has to be in the presence of others. It has to. I mean, you think about it. How are we supposed to understand love unless someone's hated us? How are we supposed to understand uh, forgiveness unless we were betrayed? It's going to happen in family settings. It's going to happen in school settings. It's going to happen in church settings where we're betrayed. But then the one thing about Christianity, it teaches us how to forgive. We can only learn those things in the presence of each other. And that's how we get the Spirit of God inside of us. And so my encouragement to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is that if you want to live, may you welcome the Spirit of God to come inside of you. May you welcome each other. May you be kind to each other. May you listen to each other's stories. May we pray for each other as well. And then you will see that we will be a church that is alive. Alive for God and alive for others. Let's pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, thank you so much for calling us out to be your people. Thank you, for, uh, thank you so much, most of all, for breathing life into us, God. The breath that has given us life, physical life, but also the breath that now encourages us in a very spiritual way, in a very uh, spiritual way where we can connect with each other, O oh Lord. You give us that opportunity every Sabbath when we come together for church. You give us that opportunity every time we're sitting at home with family members. You give us that opportunity when we're with our coworkers or anywhere else in life, O oh Lord. May we experience you. May you enter our lives so that we may live. But then we also have a role to play. That may we be those who can also breathe life into others. Because as we meet with other people and we bring them Jesus to them, they will come alive as well. May you give us that calling as a church that we may continue to affect the lives here in Castle Rock so that this area may not be full of dry bones, but people who are alive for each other and for you. In your name I pray, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.